So welcome to another episode and edition of the Oxford Community Schools podcast. Let me just give you a brief introduction to our conversation this morning. Um, But before I do introduce our conversation, let me just remind our listeners that we at Oxford Schools have a a vision and mission that is really kept at the forefront of our thought and our attention to all details and everything we do, and that's to create a world-class education today to shape tomorrow's leaders. And we always uh, have the conversation to empower and enforce that vision. We are set on a mission to provide an education that challenges all students to achieve their maximum potential in academics, arts, and athletics, and it prepares them to succeed in a global society. And today, with, with that mission and vision still, again, at the forefront of our thought, we have a unique opportunity to have a guest with us that's no stranger to Oxford, much like our, our last podcast guest that we've had. Um, a lot of our community members might not know exactly who this man is, but they've seen him all the that. time. I think I think 95% of them would know. They, they know that's the reporter guy. They might not know CJ the way we've gotten to know CJ over the years. And as I was thinking through this podcast, I'm kind of creating some outline. I realize you both, Tim and CJ, which I'll let you give more introduction, but you have about the same 20 years of career overlap, right? I think CJ got here maybe a year or two before me. I came in the fall of uh, August of 2000 and... That was May 99. May of 99, so... So close. Yeah, so without further ado, uh, we have the pleasure of having CJ Carnaccio in our office. I was going to say studio, but uh, in my office today. And uh, part of this was that I heard from uh, some of our employees that, you know what, Tim, boy, it'd really be cool if you uh, had an interview with CJ and um, got his sort of perspective on our community and our schools. And so uh, without further ado, CJ, can you just uh, give us a little, yeah, background information about yourself and um I don't know, maybe something that uh, the majority of people in our community would not know about you. Uh, I really don't know. I, well, I grew up in uh, Detroit, uh, 8 Mile and Kelly area. Uh, later moved to East Detroit, graduated East Detroit in 94, uh, went on to U of M. I was there from 94 to 99, and actually I graduated May 1st, 99, and started here May 10th. So. Uh, I was still on my first job at the leader. Didn't didn't have uh, much time to uh, move. <laughs> no, not not really, not really. Although I had the job, uh, Jim Sherman hired me in March of '99, so I knew uh, uh, going when I graduated, I had a job, so I could enjoy the last few months where everyone nice. else was worried. So that Take was some nice. Of that pressure off. Yeah, a lot. So you've been with the leader then uh, twenty plus years. Yes. And so I'm going to jump right in and say, uh, CJ. Out of those 20 years, what did you absolutely love most about getting up every day and um, being the editor of the local newspaper? Likewise, man, what what did you just cringe and say, man, this job would be perfect if I didn't have to do blank? I think the the part of the job I enjoyed the most was always talking to people and telling stories, uh, people's t- stories, um, helping the nonprofits in town like Oxford and Fish, uh, the veterans groups, um, Canine's Trade Rescue. Those were always some of my favorite stories. 
but also telling the stories that normally wouldn't get picked up uh, in other places. Like I did a, a story on uh, one of my last stories, John Barczyk. He's a Lakeville resident, and he's been caring for his wife who has Alzheimer's, and they just celebrated their 50th anniversary. Wow. And normally it was interesting because when you do 50th anniversary stories, you're sitting down and you're talking with both people. Uh, about their life together, but in this case, I could really only talk to John. But I thought it was still a good story because it was about, um, you know, it's the, the whole the wedding vows for better, or for worse, for sickness and health. And here's a guy who was caring for his wife every day, being her sole caregiver. Uh, and uh, he was still loving, loving her and living with her and taking care of her. And I thought that was a story that needed to be told. It wasn't your typical 50th anniversary story, but I thought it was an important right. story because it exemplifies that not everything is perfect at 50 years. We always read the golden stories where everybody's traveling and preparing to go on a cruise. Well, here was a guy who's still there for his wife, even though she doesn't quite really you know, know who he is. He, she'll still have glimmers of rec- uh, recognition, but he's still there for her. So. Wow. Wow. Powerful story. Yeah, and I I agree. I think um, for me personally, one of the best ways that I learn and remember is through a story. Mm. It's one thing to like, you know, read a textbook and, you know, okay, I got to memorize these bullet points or that kind of thing. But boy, if there's a lesson attached to a story, just for me, man, I can really recall that yeah. information versus just, you know, trying to totally just memorize rote information. Exactly. Uh, stories can be really powerful. Well, one of the things you asked me, uh, what I didn't like about, or what I won't miss, I think what I won't miss is the constant deadlines. You know, it's hard to meet a weekly deadline. You always have to have that product out. There's no extensions. You've got to have the newspaper done regardless. And, and also there's a lot of nights and weekends involved. And i got to admit, that kind of grinds on you after a while. When you've got a village council meeting on one night, followed by township board the next night, followed by township planning commission the next night. Oh, and by the way, there's events to cover Saturday and Sunday. You know, it kind of takes a huge chunk out of your personal life. And I, there was a lot of times I, I did enjoy it, and I, I liked doing my job well, but I kind of got to the point in my life where I would like to take some more time to enjoy things. And So, so all of you uh, students out there who think you want to be a journalist, take note of that. That's uh, one thing that... Uh, you need to know. So uh, from the community, we know that, okay, the Oxford Leader comes out on a weekly basis. We get mm. to see it on Wednesday morning. Like when you say I've got to meet my deadline, okay, so there's time that uh, the actual paper has to be printed, it has to be put together, it's got to be put in trucks or whatever and delivered. What was your deadline? Uh, normally I went to press uh, 3 o'clock on Tuesday. When I first started, when we printed in-house, the paper went to press Wednesday morning. Uh, usually I think it was about 8 o'clock it had to be done by. And then, we, and then we'd print it and send it out that day. But because we print out of house now, it has to be done by Tuesday at 3. So usually my schedule was work on the paper uh, up until Monday, and then Monday try to spend the day laying it out and tweaking it. And then Tuesday was just about editing and rearranging things or any last-minute things. I, I always wanted to have the night to digest it. So technically I, I would lay out probably 90 95% of the paper on Monday. Gotcha. So All right, very good. So everybody else gets a calm Monday. Me, it was like, that's my Monday and Tuesday were my busiest days. So Mondays were truly Mondays for you. Yeah, exactly. Everybody else complained about Mondays. Is you have no idea what it's like to really have to uh, on a Monday. All right, and so 
jumping ahead, uh, you've you've uh, left the Oxford Leader and you've taken a position with the Oxford Township. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about just that that process and how you came about that decision mm-hmm. and what it is that you're going to be doing at the township. Well, it's a new position. It's communications and grants manager. And the township actually started discussing creating the position over the summer. And I was <laughs> covering a meeting when it came up. And I, I listened to the conversation. I saw the rough uh, job description that was put out at the time. And I thought, well, this is something I could do. It's something interesting. So I started thinking about it. And then when they decided, when they got a firmer job description established and they decided to advertise, uh, then I decided, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to put in for this. I'm going to go for it. And I think it's a good fit. A lot of it's the communications end is, an, is a natural fit with journalism, but also the grants end. Uh, I like the idea that I'm still going to be writing, but now when I write, it's going to be to bring in money for the community and that. So I think it's a natural fit for, uh, I think the the, be- the most important part of grant writing is being an effective and strong writer and communicator, and I think I have those skills. Now it's just a matter of learning how to fit those skills into the mold of what people expect on a grant application. But, I mean, in the, at the end of the day, I look at grants, it's the same way as writing a news story. It's, it's all about research and details and then communicating what you've learned in an effective way. So, in, But instead of writing for a mass audience, I'm going to be writing for uh, one or two people or a Very committee who are hopefully just giving me money for what we've written. So. <laughs> From my, my own lens, uh, my two oldest boys... Uh, went to private liberal arts schools in separate states, one in Kentucky, one in Pennsylvania. And as they were going through college, as well as all of their friends, they'd come home and we would talk. Two things were in common with, uh, with both of our boys and many of their friends, and that is independent of their major or what state or whether they were at a public university or a private school, a requirement was always a stats class and a communications class. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that uh, communications is going to be a part of this job. What what does that entail? So I, I've been uh, lobbying internal in Oxford saying, you know what, uh, I know we're not there today, but... Uh, I think one of the things that we should look at is requiring a stats class and a communications class for every graduate to come through. Why? Mm -hmm. If all of these colleges are saying, you know what, doesn't matter what you're going to do, you have to have these two classes, maybe we should take a a hint from that and and make sure that we try to give a a leg up or anything that we can do to, to benefit our students. How does communications look for you coming into this new role, I think our students, maybe even our staff, uh, they, they may not have an idea of, like, what what does that entail? Well, I mean, in this job, it's going to be putting out press releases and uh, social media posts, Facebook, things like that. I think communications is just basically trying to take your idea and put it down as effectively and concisely as you can into words so that everybody reading is going to get the idea of what you're saying. And I think communication is more important now than it's ever been because people, for good or ill, everybody has a mass audience now thanks to social media. And what we're discovering is people are fighting because they don't really know how to communicate. 
with each other effectively. Huh. You know, yeah, and, and that's a one, even when I, even as a writer, if I want to have an important conversation with something, I still don't send text messages or emails because I think you can't always convey tone with your writing. You can do your best, but sometimes something you write, it doesn't necessarily come across as how you meant it. So that's how we get a lot of misunderstanding. So I think anything you can do to make people more effective communicators, it helps in not just whether you do it professionally or even in your personal life. I think that's part of the big reason we have conflicts and misunderstandings and the things that we do is because people don't effectively communicate with each other. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot. How do you think you've covered Oxford schools for 20 years? How many superintendents is that? Uh, it's only four. Let's see, we got Marion, uh, Janopolis, Virginia Brennan, Cairo, Bill Skilling, and Tim. Yep. So, yeah, four. Orchard, where's Mark Orchard? No, he was, he was in the 80s. Okay. Yep. Yep. But I know Mark, and he's a great guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he is. So, communications. I just lost my train of thought. It's okay. I've been over here trying to bite my tongue because I couldn't be agreeing more. He's experienced. He's seen so much from my desk, and I couldn't agree more with the statement of, if you really want to communicate something well, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, tone, there's no wrong reading, wrong inflection of yeah. of anything that you might take in a, in a written text or type message. And the bottom line is, we got to stop using emojis. You know, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like we've almost reverted back. You know, the Egyptians, ancient civilizations used pictures, cave drawings to communicate. But then we created this great thing called the written language, and now it seems like as a society, we're going back to hieroglyphics. We're, we're regressing. You know, I'm so tired of seeing the little emojis, and it's like, say what you mean. If you like something, you know, say, hey, I like this, or hey, that was funny. Don't show me a smiley face or an avocado or whatever. I don't. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. So going back to my question, <clears throat> through your lens, how has Oxford, and I'm speaking really of the district now mm. at this point. <clears throat> How have we communicated well, and where could we improve in our communication? Well, I think now, I think over the last few years, actually, you know, I'm trying to butter you up, but I mean, I think the district's improved a lot under you because I think the district is more transparent. I think you are better about communicating with things. You know, I think there's a tendency in school districts to kind of think that the, the district is the whole world, you know, and that every everyone comes to us and we're the most important thing. And I think what you've done and you've shown the district is part of the community. It's not the community. And I think there's been some mistakes in past superintendents that I've seen where they thought, we're the center of the universe, everything bows down to us, and that's all there is. Whereas you said, no, we know we're the school district, we're part of the community. We're like the churches, we're like the township, the village, the police department. We're all this facets that make up the community. We're not the community. So I, I think that's one of the things that, that's been effective, where you're not trying to take over and dominate the conversation, say we're the most important thing. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So if uh, you had decided to uh, take the superintendent position instead of the township position, and... Which I wouldn't do. Oh, brother. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want your job. And our roles were reversed. Uh-huh. What is uh, the most important thing, or what, what is something that you would want to make sure that somebody told you as superintendent? But, you know, you, you've got this great lens of our community, of all of these different organizations and facets, but w- what is it that, that you think that 
is really important for the superintendent or maybe even our board or even our teachers. What is it important for our people to know uh, that maybe they don't know today? Well, I think the most important thing is just staying connected with the kids in the classrooms. You know, we always say that um, the, the classroom is the most important place. Well, that's what I think the superintendent should be more, and people in other higher positions. You know, go visit the, and I, I don't mean just the glad hand photo op visit at classrooms, but really sit there, you know, li- stay there for a full class. Listen to how the teacher teaches, or what she communicates with her students, talk to the kids. I think that's what's, I think sometimes some people in bigger roles, they get trapped in the office, and it's all about, well, I've got to be at this office or this conference, or I've got to travel the world or things like that. And it's like, no, the most important place in the school district's in the classroom. And I think, People in the higher-up positions just need to remember that and try to stay as connected with the teachers as they can. Not just being in the classroom, but also meet regularly with the teachers, talk to the teachers, find out what their issues are so there's not a barrier. You know, I, uh, Over the years, I knew a lot of teachers who were afraid to express certain opinions or say things because there were pre- previous superintendents who didn't make it feel comfortable to express your opinions. And I think as a superintendent, I would want to hear what the teachers are saying, what the parents are saying, and be as close as I can be to that as possible. You, you don't want to ever have a wall, you know, and I think some people, they build walls. I mean, whether they whether they intentionally do it or un- unintentionally, those walls exist, and that's never a good thing. All right, good advice. I'll take note of that. By the way, you do do good with that because you are. I see you as more of a superintendent of the PB. You're more friendly and approachable, and you know you don't have this air about you that oh, that's a superintendent. I can't go up to him. You know, it's like hey, that's just Tim. How's it going, Tim? Uh, so and, and that's a good being approachable. Being approachable is an important thing, and that's that's something you really can't teach somebody or you know they they've got to work on it themselves. And as long as you're approachable, I think that's half the battle. Gotcha. Yeah, in in a lot of ways, CJ. Your relationship and my relationship and my desk and your desk through the shift of superintendents has grown immensely, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, one, I felt a little hand-tied. Right. Another one, I'm like, been empowered. Go go yeah. do some things, which has been great for you and I to overcome mm-hmm. those things so that we can work together in a lot of cases and a lot of things. One of my questions that I just would love to hear you because, again, you have that I have a student looking at our Oxford society, writing articles, listening to people, telling those stories. But at the same time, you also have the lenses of that parent seat. Somebody sits at the conference tables with teachers. What are some of the key kind of, I would say, even historical shifts that you've seen or experienced over your career with us as a school district in Oxford? Whether And I don't care if it's negative. Because negative, we need to take the negative and learn from. If it's positive, yeah, great accolades. What can we do more of to, to improve that? Mm-hmm. And it can be either of those answers. It could be both and. What are some of your just like from a distance holding your thumb up to the horizon, things that you've seen historically that good, bad, or indifferent you can, you can help us grow by knowing about? Well, I think there's a lot of things Oxford offers that it didn't before, uh, different classes. Uh, I think I like that um, at the high school he, uh, criminal forensics class, mm-hmm. things like that, um, the HOSA club, uh, even the virtual uh, academy. I think there's a lot of good things that Oxford's done to uh, expand the uh, educational um, activities and opportunities for the students, and that's been that's been really nice. I think it's helped draw people to the district. A lot of it's also probably been in response to the changing times and that. 
Uh, one of the things I think Oxford probably could stress a little more is the, the career and technical stuff because there are a lot of kids who aren't going to go into college isn't meant for everyone. And, and I mean, certainly, you know, I'm not trying to discourage anyone from going to college, but there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good professions in the trades, uh, whether it's a plumber or a heating and cooling or auto mechanic, and you can have a high paying job and make a nice living and you don't have to go to college. So it'd probably be nice if we had a little more focus on the career and technical aspects. And that for the students who aren't going to go to U of M or Michigan State or Central. I think one of the things that has, uh, I don't know, I don't want to be melodramatic, but has really broken my heart uh, as being superintendent is the lie that education had put out for the last 15 years that every student has to go to college. And, man, we had year after year of many of our students going to college, they get through year one, and then they drop out. Mm -hmm. And they drop out not because they weren't smart enough or anything like that, but it was either this wasn't what they wanted to do. Interest. Interest. Or two, they flat out didn't have the money. Mm -hmm. And what happens is you have a kid that goes to college, they haven't figured out with their parents, how am I going to pay for all four years? Not just year one, get in the door, and, okay, I'm at school. How am I going to pay for this for four years? They end up dropping, and, man, all of a sudden they've got $25,000, $30,000, they're in debt, and now they and go they haven't the done and achieved anything. Oh, and and they're, they're, they're trying to pay it off for the next 10, yeah. 15 years of their life. Oh, my gosh. Well, there's some attitudes, I think, that have to be overcome. I think there's still an attitude. There's a prejudice where you have people who look down on people who didn't go to college. But then you also have parents who, and it's not a bad thing, parents always want better for their kids than they had it, so they think they have to go to college, but they don't realize better doesn't always mean college. So you shouldn't pressure your kid to go to college just because you what's you want. I think that's part of the biggest thing. You do have parents who try to well-intentionally try to live out their dreams through their kids or whether it's sports or anything else, you know, you should never make your dreams, your kids dreams. I think you should be there to support your kids, but let them choose their own path. And sometimes that path may be becoming a plumber. I mean, and you know, 40, $50 an hour isn't a bad way to go. That's right. That's right. One of the things that you mentioned, I need a good reporter this Friday. So Mm -hmm. if you know anybody, let me know. We're taking 400 uh, students from the high school mm-hmm. to a expo in Novi, mm-hmm. and it's all career tech exploration. Oh, that's great. We actually have so many kids going this year that we actually have our own quadrant of the facility that will be making its migration through technology, health, and uh, health science, all of the four quadrants that we mm-hmm. look at. Um, and it'll be fun because it's hands-on. It's it's welding experiences. It's driving a nail competition. It's like things that the real DTEs there, like yeah. the real hands-on trades are there. All the uh, DMCs there, Beaumont's there. All the people are saying, "Here's the careers that you don't even know exist, and here's your plan to get to it." Mm-hmm. And that, when you said that, kind of helped stimulate in my mind the thought of. We as a society don't really do a good job helping our kids see the careers outside of the house that they grow up in. Mm -hmm. And they think, I'm going to do what that does, right? One of my questions for you, too, that I have is 
um, really two-part, but not so much tied to school as it is your big thumbprint on Oxford, which is small done right. You know, that's our, that's our village motto, at least. Um, what are some of the cultural shift things that you've observed in your 20 years of reporting on it? Um, we all know, at least at this table, that it's it's small town. Mm-hmm. Like it's it might be a suburb of Detroit, but it's small town in so many ways. Yeah, I can remember when I first moved here, Myers had just opened, and like that was the deal because oh, yeah. now people didn't have to drive all the way to Lake Orion to get to a Kroger store. I mean, that was huge. Right. I you know speaking of Mark Orchard, I can remember him just telling me. Oh, Tim, you don't understand how this Myers has impacted Oxford. <laughs> Negatively and positive, maybe. Yeah. A little of both. <laughs> yeah. So what are some of those things that you've, you've seen? Well, I guess there has been. It's been more of migration of uh, city people out here, uh, people from southern Oakland County or from Macomb. And, and so, I, you know, there's, I guess you don't know everybody like you used to. You know, there's still an element of small town, but there's also so many more people mm-hmm. that you don't know who they are. So we've kind of lost a little bit of that. And I guess uh, one of the problems I have is people move out here and they automatically want to make it like the place that they moved from. And it's like, well, I want Oxford to have some conveniences, don't get me wrong, but I also don't want to look like, uh, um, you know, M59 down there. Right. <laughs> I don't want to mm-hmm. be like that either. But you've got some people, the minute they move out, well, we need this, this, and this. And it's like, well, why did you leave that place if you just want to make this place? I thought you came out here for the wide open spaces, things like that. I'm not... I, I don't think there should be no development. I, I think, but I also don't think you can say we're just going to put down the gate and nobody else can come here. Right. So I mean, but I've seen more people move, and there's a lot more younger families uh, than there was before. I think mm-hmm. we see more of that. And so, what are your thoughts on this proposed hospital coming in? When I first heard about that, read about it in the paper. I mean, I was, like, totally jazzed. Mm. Uh, just kitty-corner from our high school, I'm thinking, man, we could have all these interactions with our students and stuff at the high school. But, uh, I don't know, it sounds like maybe that's not going to go through now. Well, I'll say I haven't been to the – I know that Beaumont is appealing the decision. Okay. And so we'll see what happens. Um, personally, I, I think it was a good thing. I know there are some people who propose – the main opposition has always been the traffic. And it's sure. like, well, we're going to have traffic – M24 is going to grow along there. There's wide open space that's going to be built up. It's not It's not like it's pristine farmland or woods or anything. So traffic to me is just something we'd have to deal with. But when your nearest hospitals are Lapeer, Rochester, and Pontiac, that's, that's not a good thing. I mean, personally, if I have a heart attack or a stroke, I don't want to rely on, you know, a 15 or 20-minute drive. You know, I want to be right here. And I, I think it's this is a natural place to put hospital. I can't. I, I don't understand the state. Frankly, I don't. I, even though I wrote the stories, I still don't understand how the state could reject putting a hospital here because they put the call out for it. They said, well, these zip codes are all part of this area that we need. But then when they issued the decision, they said, well, it wasn't the whole zip code. It was a percentage of this, a percentage of that. I mean, they make things more complicated than it needs to be. And frankly, I, I, I understand why they have the whole certificate of need program, which is what you need in order to build a facility like a hospital because they don't want people just building things willy-nilly. But frankly, I don't believe Beaumont would invest $140 million in an area if they didn't truly think a hospital 
uh, was needed and could be successful in this area. So right. I think the state needs to to step back and just let Beaumont do its thing. And I, I think it would be a good thing. I think it, not only is it good for the health, safety, and welfare of the community, I think it would bring new job opportunities for people. I think it would bring new uh, people into the area, uh, professionals, doctors, nurses. And uh, I think it would be a positive for the community. I don't think you can go wrong uh, putting a hospital in your community. But. Excellent. We'll, we'll see what the state does. Well, uh, we've we've hit on a lot of the topics that that I've wanted to talk about. Uh, CJ, is there anything else that uh, you would want to let our employees or our students know? Oh, I've just had a pleasure. It's been a pleasure covering. I'm going to miss a lot of the teachers and students. Uh, I'm going to miss that. Uh, daily or weekly interaction with them although a lot of the teachers and students that i've known they've they've gone now you know i, I shudder to think how many kids uh, photos i've shot over the years and uh, <laughs> but it's uh, i am gonna miss that i, I then there's st- still a lot of good teachers here that i'm gonna miss uh teacher like dan balsley i think he's a a gem over at the high school and you know absolutely i mean he's got one i think one of the best programs out there and uh I'm just going to miss dealing with people like that. There's been a lot of good teachers. I've had a lot of good relationships, and uh, it's been a pleasure covering the district. Excellent. Well, I've I've personally learned a few things. I've taken notes uh, in our interview today that I'm going to um, uh, move forward on, and I appreciate you, uh, CJ, for being open and, and uh, giving us your perspective. Matt, anything else that you want to... Uh, to nope. end our conversation no, today on? I'll, well, I'll just close by saying thanks for your years of serving and working with us. So many stories that um, we really needed a, a, an ally of a person with the power of a pen. And we didn't own you, per se. We didn't have the right to say, CJ, we need, we need, this. We need you to do this for us. <laughs> but you willingly, as a community member, said, yeah, I can understand uh, your, your need in getting this bond passed. Let me, let me do some research of your story and let me share the story. So um, I thank you for stepping back and really being a, a fair weigher of all the facts to help present the facts and um, keep our story going and out there. So as a professional working with you, I appreciate that greatly. Oh, yeah, you. so I'm going to inject the, this just one last little tidbit because I, I do get uh, asked this often, and it is in regards to my interaction with the media. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you flat out that the, the thing that I appreciated most about you, CJ, is that whether the story was on a topic that we wanted to talk about or, quite frankly, it was a story, we, we a topic we didn't want to talk about, you were always fair with us, and I uh, can't thank you enough for that. I appreciate that. Early in my superintendency, there was a few um, situations, interactions where you know, I had news reporters, TV reporters, uh, not only outside our door, but come into our building. And there's nothing worse than having a reporter say, I want to talk to you about this, this topic. You talk 30 minutes about this, and that night on the TV... There's a 15-second clip, and it is nothing about what you wanted to communicate to your community about. 
it, it's you, you feel like you just got punched in the stomach. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, again, from my perspective, I appreciate all your years of service that you've uh, that you've dealt with the schools. And um, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. And just to piggyback on that real quick, I'll put a, a plug in for it. That's why I think people, if they really want to remain informed about what's going on, whether it's on a local, state, or national level, the people who are truly informed are the people who read newspapers. You can't get the whole story from TV or radio, and you certainly can't get it from social media because that's not journalism in any way, shape, or form. So if you want to stay informed about what's going on, you've got to read your paper, whether it's the Oxford Leader, whether it's the Detroit News, or it's the Lansing State Journal, or the New York Times. Newspapers are where people who really want to inform get the best information. Excellent. Well, we have a saying that we always end our podcast with every time. It's a great day to be a wildcat. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.